truth begins with the idea that I am and that you are. And just by the mere fact that you're alive and that I'm alive, well, this is what gives you worth and me worth. It is, it is self-evident. And as we began to explore last episode, we, we find that life is intentional and not accidental, that our humanity is intrinsic, and that this is why identity politics and all its forms is a dangerous way to look at all people. We're divided by class. They divide us by rank and by race, by economics, by religion, and by ideology, political or social. And they divide us by level of education. And while we must acknowledge our differences, what unites us all is the understanding that life has worth, regardless of our place in society. History reveals that one of the greatest plights and struggles in humankind has been the violation of this law of human worth. And it's one of the darkest stains of our reality. But if all of us, you and I, can agree that you matter and that I matter and that all life has intrinsic value, then there must be an absolute truth by which we all live. Or how then can we all be equal? Or how can we be created equal? Because you say so or I say so? The greatest debate is that of our origins, how life began, where, where did we come from, what, what gives us meaning, if there is purpose or just a, some fanciful fate that comes at random. This tug of war on, on these very questions has been between two great establishments, religion and science. The metaphysical and the existential. Why, why, are, why are both establishments? Because ultimately both are a product of human reasoning. And both have attempted to, to seize control on how all life should be defined. Both have been oppressive to our self-evident truth of life. And both have tried to evict the other by coercion, by fear, by control. They have both failed in their attempts, and yet both are relevant. Both have complemented each other and have even borrowed from one another. And why? Because both have sought after the betterment of the human race. Both have acknowledged by this pursuit that there is or that there must be something better than this reality. Then all the wars, the atrocities, the terrorism, the moral decay, and all the corruption, the, the, the vitriol and the division we see today in society. One affirms that truth is absolute, while the other asserts that truth is rooted in naturalism and the postmodern philosophy of relativism. If you look back into the uh, early 90s, there was a religious philosopher named... Um, Loyal D. Rue, and he made an incredibly bold statement where he said that 
Modern culture urgently needs a noble lie, a myth that links the moral teachings of religion with the scientific facts of life. It, it really is a contradiction in terms. Essentially, we can create our own reality, uh, a truth based in, in, in untruth, and if it leads to peace and harmony, the world described in Lenin's Imagine, where we basically erase everything, pretend it isn't there, and the world will be as one. Rue goes on to define what this noble lie is and who should be its designers. He says, What I mean by the noble lie is one that deceives us, that tricks us, compels us beyond self-interest, beyond ego, beyond family, nation, race, that will deceive us into the view that our moral discourse must serve the interests not only of ourselves and of each other, but those of the earth as well. The illusion must be so imaginative, so compelling that it can't be resisted, so beautiful and satisfying that all would feel they have to accept it. It remains for the artists, the poets, the novelists, the musicians, the filmmakers, the tricksters and the masters of illusion to winch us toward our salvation by seducing us into an embrace with a noble lie. He is essentially saying that ignorance, no, no better yet, creative illusion is bliss. The quest for truth is essentially the quest for meaning. But if Rue is right, nothing matters. And yet, this noble lie that he proposes acts as some, ad, some objective substitute for truth. It's advocating opening the door to a possibility of actual answers sitting in the red chair having the great Morpheus offer us both the blue pill and the red pill. And instead of taking the red pill of truth that will show us the answers we've been searching for, we take the blue pill. And in Morpheus's words, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You know, I'm really beginning to wonder how many would actually want to swallow the blue pill and leave well enough alone? The Matrix cult movie trilogy has become a powerful analogy to life in our postmodern world. So you have the protagonist, Neo, and he chooses truth, the red pill. But what he chose wasn't what most choose. He was the exception to the rule. As, as the story goes, most go on with their lives, day to day, accepting what they see, never questioning if there's something more. Truth exists regardless of whether you are aware of it. 
Whether you believe it or reject it, it's there. Truth doesn't require you. It doesn't require me. It doesn't require your or my validation in order for it to be true. Truth is truth all on its own. This extrinsic quality of is the very identifying mark of truth. Without it, it simply becomes a figment of our own imagination, this noble lie that keeps us in the dark while believing we're safe. This is exactly the point of the Matrix. You are your own reality and nothing else matters. The encounter Neo, Neo has with Morpheus does reveal something even more relevant, however. Neo is given a choice. The choice does not affect the validity of the truth. His choice only affects his own destiny. To know or not to know. To know what already is there, what, what already exists. Knowing does not alter the truth. It offers him the opportunity to see what is already there. To see for the first time what he couldn't see before, but what he was searching for. Taking the red pill ultimately does what Morpheus says it will do. It will set him free. Now, this is what naturalism at its core rejects. There is no truth save what can be proven. There is no red pill, blue pair, uh, red pill, blue pill scenario. We're all the product of our own environment, a happy accident of chance, as Richard Dawkins calls it, a universe with no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Is that the sum of our existence? It boggles the mind how a man like this, such an intellectual, could say such a thing. And yet, this is the best he has to offer. It's the best that naturalism has to offer. Only the strong survive. We're a product of some primordial soup of happenstance. If that's the case, then we should stop right here and let life stop here as well. Now, I'm not a scientist, and I don't claim to have all the answers. Remember, I'm no expert here. I'm not approaching this as an expert. I don't claim to be that. And that's the point, though, isn't it? We must never stop exploring. We must never stop asking the questions. Like Thomas Jefferson says, question with boldness. There is in our society a, a sense of entitlement where claims are made and and now the popular thing to say is, the science is settled. Has the truth been settled in this case? There's no way we can cover the full extent and body of, of evidence in 25, 30 minutes that, that science or religion have to offer on the question of origin and life. But we can use the very methodology of science to ask some logical questions. There is the simple logical structure of cause and effect. No one would say the iPad just formed itself. It came together spontaneously. There are multiple elements at work that when intricately put together create a machine capable of doing what an iPad is able to do. It is the product of design. 
The same can be said of an iPhone, our desktops, and the many devices we use on a day-to-day basis. There is a cause, an idea, a design, a manufacturing of that design, and the final product, which is the natural effect. And this process is known as the order principle. Jeremy L. Walter, noted scientist, states, A specific corollary of the order principle is the law that one can cause, or, or that one caused, can have many effects. But no effect can be quantitatively greater or qualitatively superior to its cause. So based on this order principle law, the iPad in its design and its intelligibility, its intricacy and ability gives evidence of a greater intellect and intelligence at work. What is an iPad compared to the intricacy and complexity of the human mind or our our very own DNA, greater even to the known universe? Another scientist, or rather scientific philosopher, Stephen Mayer, whose area of expertise is in molecular biology, physics, and and evolutionary theory, has this to say. He says, Take the expansion rate of the universe, which is fine-tuned to one part in a trillion, 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 trillion. That is, if it were changed by one part in either direction, a little faster, a little slower, we could not have a universe that would be capable of supporting life. So he says, one trillion, one trillion, that's nine zeros. The odds in this case are equal to adding another 45 zeros to that number. And science, or naturalism, would have us believe that chance beat those odds? Who are we kidding? It would seem that faith is much more required in order for anyone to accept that you and I just poof came to be. Go to Darwin's theory of spontaneous generation. It becomes quite an improbability when weighed quantitatively in numbers. The smallest number of proteins required to allow for a proper function of just one cell is about 100 proteins. Ralph Munkaster calculates that for just 100 different proteins to link up together in the right sequence by chance alone gives us a probability of 10 to the 2,000th power. Look, I'm no mathematician, but I look at that. And this is, of course, just an estimate. Take Harold Morowitz. He calculates these chances on just one cell at 10 to be a hundred trillionth power. Now, to date, scientists have been able to calculate the total number of cells in the human body to be at around 37.2 trillion. Again, an estimate. And this number represents a number of cells broken down by organs, cell types, densities, etc. The number of cells varies from individual to individual, by the way. And we haven't even discussed the complexity of human DNA. That's just the cells. 
all of this taken into account, based on the order principle of cause and effect, when you take all this into account, can science say with absolute certainty that you and I are a product of chance? Who, who are we kidding? Do they expect us to believe this? That we have, there is no designer. And yet, an iPad most certainly is a product of design. Another noted scientist, George Wald, writes these words on the matter. He says, Spontaneous generation was disproved a hundred years ago. This is a noted scientist, people. Spontaneous generation was disproved a hundred years ago. He goes on to say, But that would lead us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds, so we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously. Ladies and gentlemen, this is coming from a noted scientist. Again, he says, Spontaneous generation was disproved a hundred years ago. But that leads us to the conclusion of supernatural creation. But we can't accept that on philosophical grounds. So we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously. This absolutely strains all belief. How can a noted scientist, one who places truth on the weight of evidence and logic, in the same statement, state the facts, and yet choose rather not to believe it based on a preconceived notion? And so he, among many other intellectual minds, actually takes the red pill. He actually takes the red pill, sees the truth, and because of bias, decides, nope, put me back in the matrix. I would rather believe in a noble lie. Wake up in my bed and believe what I want to believe. This, this is the definition of madness. living now, not in the delicious intoxication induced by the early successes of science, but in a rather grisly morning after, when it has become quite apparent that what triumphant science has done hitherto is to improve the means for achieving unimproved or actually deteriorated ends. Aldous Huxley one of the most prominent writers and thinkers of the 20th century made this most astonishing statement. Not only was he a naturalist, but he was also an avowed atheist. The point here is not to discredit science. Not at all. It's to try and reconcile the truth of our existence. Huxley's statement is one of many more than that cannot disprove the reality of design and therefore the existence of a designer, nor can they claim a moral framework based in scientific philosophy. Because naturalism does not place inherent value on the human race. It is partial to the theory of the strong survive, 
so life isn't equal in that system. The weak are expendable. So do we continue to explore? Do we keep inquiring and searching? Or do we concede to a settled science answer? Do we take the blue pill? After all, it may just be much easier to swallow. But this is another characteristic of truth. It isn't easy. It shocks us out of our comfort zones and biases. It isn't partial to anyone. It is irrefutable and does not rely on consensus. Take a simple concept such as gravity. Did gravity require science to bring it into existence? Or was it always there? Discovery isn't the act of spontaneous creation, and I think sometimes we get that confused. It is arrogant presumption to think that a vote by a chosen few would somehow validate the existence of gravity as if we had a hand in it. Galileo found something that was already there. In fact, its existence and its precision in relation to the cosmos, the alignment of the planets, and to the sun, etc., is what makes life possible. Galileo is subject to it, not the other way around. And so the obvious question follows, if it was already there, what or who put it there? And how can we account for gravity's exact precision for life to exist and for life to be sustainable? Why, why is it out of the question to say that such a force as gravity, the planets and their orbits, the, the vastness of the universe, that life itself is a product of design, if we would all concede that an iPad, a smartphone, a, a car, a smart flat-screen TV, by their precision and construct, are products of an intentional and creative design. It boggles the mind. One can go even further to the human genome. The complete mapping of the genes of human beings. These genes, which are encoded in a certain sequence to form what we know as DNA, has such a complexity to its engineering and function. The Human Genome Project discovered about 3 billion DNA-based pairs in a single human genome. You can take just one gram of DNA, a drop that can fit in the tip of your pinky, and store 700 terabytes of data. Terabytes. 700 terabytes. I remember being so excited when Apple started making iMacs that had a hard drive with the capability of fitting 300 gigs. It was, it was my first personal desktop. I'm on to my second one now, and the new hard drive on this computer that I have now has a standard of one terabyte of capacity. One gram of my DNA, of my DNA and your DNA, has within it the capacity to fit 700,000 gigs of information. And we marvel at the engineering of a machine that can fit only 0.00143% of that total number. One gram of my engineering outdoes 700 Apple iMacs. And yet we marvel at the machine and at its creators. The machine was once a collection of parts that came together by fashioning. It, it was at one time a blueprint and a schematic. 
It was once an idea in a man's mind. It is not a process of spontaneous generation. How then can one posit that you and I, with so much complexity and potential, which science has yet to completely discover, be a product of naturalistic processes of time plus matter plus chance, where the parts just came together and whoosh, one moment nothing, the next something. Science expects us to buy this? Now, it's a fair question that I'm asking. I wish I could show you two pictures that are presented side by side, which were shown by uh, Dr. Francis Collins. Uh, he's a former head of the Human Genome Project. In a talk that he gave at uh, Johns Hopkins. So if you can imagine with me these two pictures side by side. The one on the left was a picture of the stained glass rose window at York Minster Cathedral. Uh, beautiful in its uh, scope and design. The picture on the right was a cross-section of a strand, of one strand of human DNA. What's so astonishing about these two pictures side by side is the immaculate and awesome intricacy of both images. Both alike. Both alike in design and shape as if one had been patterned after the other. They both look like rose windows. If you go to our webpage, truthreel.transistor.fm, and under today's episode, The Red Pill, you'll see a link to this image, and you tell me what one, what one does with this. How can you say one is design and one is not? How can you say that one is a product of genius and the other a product of chance. When you see such examples of the power that exists within our bodies, within the world that we live in and our universe, the hunger to understand and to seek and to ask becomes even greater. The science is far from settled. Now, I'm no scientist, and I do not claim to be an expert. And that's not my intention. And yet the thought that I must hold a certificate or a degree in these matters of life and our existence in order to engage in a discourse about it is utter nonsense. Knowledge does not belong to some academic elite and nor to an institutionalized establishment. It is available to all who seek it. If there was ever a time when information was so readily accessible, surely it's the 21st century. At the click of a button, we literally hold the world in our hands and the smart devices we own and use every day. And yes, in a digital world, there's also the danger of fabricating information. And so that requires us as the inquirers, as the seekers, as the questioners, to be diligent and on guard as we search and as we question with boldness. You know, there's a story that um, I've been thinking about recently. It's a very tragic one. It happened at Taylor University. The, uh, the date was April 26, 2006. There were nine people riding in a van on I-69 
and they were coming back from Fort Wayne after setting up for a luncheon that was going to take place the next day. And just a little after 8 p.m. on that night, the van was a couple of miles from the Marion exit at State Road 18 when a semi-truck came across the median and struck the van. Investigators uh, later on learned that uh, the driver of the semi had fallen asleep and ran off the northbound roadway. The crash killed uh, Taylor University students uh, in that van, who were riding in that van. And there were two particular students whose fate would be turned in an incredible way uh, from this story. So while, of course, it's an incredible tragedy and, and one that's still remembered today by, by those involved, the events that transpired after is what makes this story so incredibly powerful. So you can imagine the, the scene when the emergency workers uh, arrived at the scene of the crash um, it was utter chaos. Well, to make a long story short, those who were there on staff um, for the emergency crew mixed up the identities of two students. Laura Van Rijn and Whitney Sarek. Sarek had survived the crash, but her face was so incredibly just mangled and destroyed from, from the crash. Um, and she was covered up in bandages. You couldn't even see her face. Uh, Laura's parents arrived at the hospital, and they weren't aware that their daughter had died. And that that injured and bandaged young girl in the hospital was actually Whitney. Meanwhile, Whitney's parents and family um, had been told that their daughter had been killed, even though she was alive and unconscious at the hospital. And Lisa Van, Van Ryn, who is Laura's sister, recalls the whole story, and she, she goes on to say that, that when they got to the hospital, they uh, were taken to who they thought was Laura, and it turned out to be Whitney instead. But it wasn't until five weeks later that she made that discovery, that the, that the family made that discovery. In other words, the Van Rynes, for five weeks, believed that their daughter, Laura, was the one in the bed. And they came every day, praying for her, holding her hand, talking to her, and the identity mix-up uh, occurred, as the story goes, when an emergency responder mistakenly clipped Van Ryn's student ID to the injured Sarek. So it was just a mistaken ID. The Van Ryn family says that the head was fully bandaged and she was unconscious. And they kept uh, calling her Laura. And for several weeks, the world believed that Whitney had died in the crash and Laura had lived. Can you imagine that moment 
when Laura, who they believed was Laura, woke up and they would, were referring to her as Laura. And uh, from what I remember of the story, it was um, the boyfriend that discovered uh, after he was calling her Laura and she was saying, why are you calling me Laura? I'm Whitney. And of course, you can imagine the utter disbelief when both families found out that the one daughter who they believed was dead was actually alive. And the one that they thought was alive was actually dead. I just can't even begin to imagine the, the utter shock and disbelief of both families. So out of that story, I ask myself about who we are as human beings. Now, the Van Ryans could have continued to live in that reality, right? I mean, you could argue in those five weeks, they at least had hope because their daughter, at least in their minds, was alive. She had survived. So they, they were there caring for her, yes, and they had to see her in, 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 this, in this state where her face had been basically destroyed from this crash. And, and an incredible healing process was now to come, but she was alive. And they believed this for five weeks, so they had hope. The other family, planning a funeral, mourning their daughter, and all the while, their daughter, Whitney, she was lying, she was the one lying in the bed. We are more than just a collection of cells. We're more than the sum of our parts. Whitney could have easily pretended to be Laura. The family could have continued to believe she was Laura, but her identity was etched in her personhood. The intrinsic worth of Whitney could not be usurped. It couldn't be stolen or, or, or changed simply because the family at her bedside believed she was in fact their daughter, Laura. No, much, no matter how much they would believe it, it couldn't change the truth. Nor could Laura's intrinsic worth be, though she had in fact died in the crash, somehow grafted onto another. Laura's family saw the differences. They could tell that she was in fact not Laura. No amount of feelings could change that truth. And though the truth was so incredibly difficult to face when it was discovered, in the end, the truth actually became what freed each of these girls. Laura's family became free to mourn, and properly so. Laura deserved to be remembered and to be mourned. Whitney's family deserved to know that she was still alive and Whitney deserved the right to live since she had survived. She was and is uniquely Whitney, something no one can ever take from her, some, something no one could ever take from Laura. So powerful is life that even in death, personhood can never be taken, can never be robbed or stolen, no matter how much you want to believe differently. And this truth of being created equal, of having intrinsic worth, is true of you and of me, of all of us.
Knowing this and understanding this allows us to be free. We can choose to believe otherwise, but it is as futile as Laura's family believing that Whitney was actually Laura. It was for a moment an illusion, perhaps even a noble lie, that allowed Laura's family to have hope and relief that their daughter had survived. But truth, no matter how much we might try, can never be denied and can never be extinguished. And yet, the choice to know the truth that is already there, that already exists, that belongs to you and to me, whether we take the red pill and risk knowing the truth regardless of our preconceived ideas, or take the blue pill and let ignorance be bliss. I'll take the red pill and let the rabbit hole lead where it will lead.